it actually manifested in a very strange way, believe it or not. And I ended up going in a deep rabbit hole of disordered eating and body dysmorphia. You know, like I've always been, I've always loved fitness Mm -hmm. and, um, and I could not, like I kept going to the gym and getting all these nutrition specialists and health coaches to get rid of this belly. And I was always, I'm small, like I'm petite, you know, I'm not a, I'm not heavy, but I had this little pooch and I'm like, there is, I'm not, I'm not keeping this, you know, like I'm, I'm spending too much time in the gym and too much time focused on my eating. And uh, I just spiraled in a way that I had never imagined before and was so afraid that if I was desperate to not be the mom that let herself go. I'm Megan Armstrong. Welcome to Life Six Feet Above. Six Feet Above was created when I started to share my story of spending 16 years wanting to be six feet under to now living a life full and happy six feet above. The more that I started to talk about my journey, my struggles and my past, the more I realized people were genuinely interested and not judgmental at all, which is what I'd feared for so long. In fact, other people wanted to talk about their story as well, and for some reason they trusted me to do so. So the Six Feet Above podcast is my way of helping to share other people's stories finding out what works for them to create a life of happiness. Before we start this episode, I want to let you know it has some explicit language and some very serious subject matter. It may be triggering or sensitive to certain people. Please listen with discretion. This is Allison's story. So episode 18, I am so honored and incredibly excited to be joined by Allison Hare, who actually interviewed me on her podcast a couple months ago, and the tables are turned. So welcome to, turned. welcome to the Six Feet Above podcast. I'm in the hot seat. You are. You are. <laughs> I can sit back and relax this time. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so um, Allison and I met a few months ago uh, through a mutual friend, actually, through Lillian. And we kind of hit it off. And um, again, another person that I didn't meet in fitness. I feel like every one I've met, pretty much 90% of my guests have been in fitness, but you were not. You were just a mutual friend. And we really hit I it off. I actually did meet you in fitness. Oh, God, years you ago. You just didn't know. I didn't know it. <laughs> I was just in your classes. <laughs> in my classes forever ago. So, Allison, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do for work, and then what you are doing with your podcasting career? Oh my goodness. How much time do you have? All right. I (laughs) promise I'll make it super quick. So I am a, by day, I'm a sales professional. I work for Salesforce. I'm in technology sales and um, have been doing it in sales for 20 years. Okay. And about a little over a year ago, I had this feeling that I had some messages that I needed to get out. And Um, just felt that itching where I was just kind of watching Real Housewives too much and saying, you know what, there's got to be a little more (laughs) like I think there's some more good I can do in this world. And so I started a podcast. And I loved it so much. I have a degree in broadcasting that um, people would always ask me, well, I'm thinking of starting a podcast, where do I even start? Yeah. So I started teaching people how to podcast and then launched a blog and uh, 
you know, trying to figure out all of it in uh, right. the rest of it. Right. So yeah, so um, I also think that I'm going to be starting a podcast network. Really? Yeah, so it's called Uncommon People Podcast Network, the Up Network. I love this. Yeah, so um, trying, to, trying to kind of get, I don't know, I just have been addicted to people who um, are using their voice in a way of sharing their message. And so I've been addicted to helping people um, find their own voice. Yeah. Just like I did of just feeling like I had more to give, but didn't know where to do it. And so I, uh, I love empowering them. Yeah. Like being that catalyst to help somebody. And that's Um, kind of where our our relationship developed is, um, you know, my first season I had uh, producers and editors and, and I really wanted to learn how to do it, at least learn the production process. And I joined your six week course and it was amazing. And then COVID hit. And then I felt like I was just scrambling to survive. And um, I remember telling you, I'm like, I feel like such a failure because I, I don't feel like I can put anything out right now. I'm not ready to start season two. And you told me, you're like, you'll start it when you're ready. And I did. And it was like, it was several months after I thought I would, but it was what I needed to hear to be like, okay, even though I waited six months between season one and season two, it doesn't matter. Like people are still there. They're still going to listen. And, um, you know, you teaching me kind of the ins and ins and outs of, of, you know, how to approach season two a little bit differently was super beneficial. And you actually just interviewed me on a follow-up. And I remember telling you, um, season one was, what do I want? Right. What, what do I, why am I doing this? Why am I doing the podcast? And after kind of reflecting and going through COVID and quarantine and, and all the stuff that has happened this year, I finally came to the realization that this podcast is not for me to host. I am just facilitating other people's stories and it's a way for me to serve the world. That's a huge shift. But I, you know, when you talked about that, I was thinking about how much of a, a maturity that mm. happens when, when, when it shifts from you, you know, cause you get the benefits right. anyway of right. just being able to kind of offer somebody a platform to share their story. But I was really touched by how, I, I, I am glad that you honored your own body, mm-hmm. you know, to say, I need a minute here, right. you know, and there were a lot of expectations through COVID through, yes. um, uh, being in quarantine of, okay, I've got to do something huge or, yeah. you know, I need to sit on this couch and it right. be okay. Right. You know, and for me, I was just in like survival mode. I lost, yeah. you know, I'm only part-time employed and I lost half of that job and, it was just like, okay, how am I going to pay my mortgage and, and all the things? And I couldn't put my focus on uh, a podcast surrounding mental health when I was very much in kind of a dark space for a yeah. while. Um, but I look, I look at myself and I'm like 10 years ago, I would have pushed through and powered through and faked it. And now I, I at least know myself so well that I was able to take a step back. Um, but during this time of COVID, you kind of took the opportunity to rebrand your podcast, rebrand your, (laughs) so what do you call, so you've got your podcast, but you've also got your coaching podcasting brand, right? Yeah. So tell me about the, those two and what the difference is. Yeah. So my podcast is called Culture Changers. So I talk to people and interview people whose work breaks convention and changes how the rest of us live. Yeah. But in the meantime, there, there are two parts or two objectives with it. One is to 
really be able to have an audience look at something in a new way. Mm. So it's like perspective shifting. But every single episode has actionable item, actionable, Mm -hmm. you know, something actionable for them to make their own mark. Like a takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. So whether it's practical takeaways or some kind of guidance or even just feeling so moved by that story, by, um, by what that person is doing to say, I can do that too. Right. And so the, the podcast program is called Press Play Podcast. And so it's a collaborative, interactive, six-week um, coaching program. And um, and it's designed to do, you know, kind of take it to the next level of those people that are saying, you know, I feel like I have more to give. Yeah. And I have things that are important to me, passions, whether they're passions or skills that they're not being able to use, or even just conversations. You know, for me, I felt like... Um, I'm very multi-passionate and there are some things that I'm, I'm really find very, very important to me, but I didn't want to just focus on just one area. Right, right. And to me, that was crippling of just, well, where do I go? I don't know what direction right. to go. And, um, and this allowed me to, um, kind of take those, those passions and let them run wild, you know? Yeah. I think everyone's got their own little crazy in them, <laughs> you know? If you're not weird, you're weird. You know what exactly. I'm saying? Like, if you're not a little bit strange and off, like, yes. there's, if you're too normal, there's something going on. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And so I think I, I it allows me to kind of dive into something that I'm so passionate about yeah. and just let it run wild and then be able to interview people who are experts in those fields right. or have been making changes or making difference in that field. And even for me, you know, I'm a parent, I'm a mom of two, I'm a wife, um, you know, like the black lab, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. There's right. so many issues with healthcare and with education. And I get to interview people who are changing the status quo yeah. of all those things and ask them the questions like the meaning of life questions, right, you right. know? So for me, it's it's incredibly gratifying to be able to feel like I'm not such a freak yeah. for, <laughs> for yeah. being so passionate or intense about uh, certain topics and be able to explore that. How incredibly timely too, right? You know, culture changers, like yeah. you really are kind of at the, the forefront of our culture completely shifting and being able to express those stories in real time. Yeah. You know, it's not like, okay, this is what this is what happened in history and you're interviewing something. No, you're interviewing people that are doing it right now, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah. Really cool. And how often do you release episodes? Every you, week. Every week. Yeah. Just like me. <laughs> <laughs> but your press play podcast was really cool. Um, you know, and I I came from 11 episodes of season one. So for me, I think I had a different perspective going into yeah, it you than some did. of your, your other um, students. And would you say that you take anyone from, hey, I just have an idea to someone like me that's, you know, done 10, 11 um, episodes already? Are you kind of open or do you have like different levels? No, I think at this point, I mean, I probably will add advanced, yeah. you know, courses, that kind of thing, advanced podcasting courses. But I think the benefit of having, you know, people who have no concepts at all. Mm-hmm. I, when I decided I wanted a podcast, I had zero idea. Yeah. In fact, that's not true. I had like 20,000 different <laughs> ideas and I didn't want to pick just one lane. Yeah. 
you know? And um, so it, it really is anybody from concept to launch. Um, and I think in your case, it was uh, most people don't take the path that you took, Megan, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of podcasting. Most people don't, you know, shell out a bunch of money right, and, right. you know, have somebody produce it. Yeah. Um, you, you are fortunate in that way to kind of have that help, but then you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm a little hamstrung here. Right. You know, right. I'm a little crippled here. It's only going to last for so long. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I had some free time on my hands last year. You so did. there's that. It there's all worked that. out. Where are you from originally? I'm from New Jersey. Okay. Yes. The Jers. The Jers. The, the dirty Jers. The dirty Jers. <laughs> How'd you end up in Atlanta? My, um, two of my brothers moved down here and two of my best friends from New Jersey, we all came and visited. And, um, and that was like back in the Buckhead days. Mm. I, don't, I don't think you lived here then, but the Buckhead days where it was like bananas. Party <laughs> central. Party central. My cousin was here when you're, I, <laughs> I remember these stories. It was insane. And so we went down there for one weekend and we're like, what are we doing in New Jersey? And we all packed up and moved. That's amazing. How old were you when you moved here? 25. Wow. 25. Okay. So I've been here for 20 years. Well, you went to school, you went to college for broadcasting. In New Jersey, in yes. In New Jersey. Yes. And then what was your life like growing up in New Jersey? Parents were married, brothers and sisters. They were married for a while. They were, okay. Um, my mom and dad, so my I'm one of seven children. Wow. Seven children. And it, it was interesting because my father had a daughter from a previous marriage okay. and then my mom and dad got together and they had boy, 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 girl, girl, girl. Wow. <laughs> I was the first of the girls. Um, so it was bedlam. Like our home was just insanity. It was insanity. <laughs> I called the child abuse hotline on my brother. I swear to God. <laughs> They're like, no, this isn't the sibling abuse. Like hotline. it was just nuts. <laughs> Real? Okay. So what'd your parents do? So my father was an importer and exporter. So he had multiple businesses. My mother did not work. And it's very interesting because it is a common thread through my whole life that my mother, um, my mom and dad were married for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And my mom was this incredible cook and she somehow raised six of us. And my father traveled around the world for work. So she was primarily, she was a disciplinarian. She did everything. And, uh, and then, you know, my, my father's businesses kind of tanked and everything just went to hell really. And my, you know, I was a teenager. A lot of us were teenagers in that time. And my parent, my mom had to go back to work and Mm. she didn't finish college. You know, she ended up marrying my father. And so after 25 years, she's like, okay, I need to go back to work and, uh, you know, still have dinner on the table and all of that stuff. And my father is from Lebanon. So he has this kind of cultural expectation of, you know, women cooking. Right. Right. (laughs) Having everything prepared and ready to go. Uh, Yeah. 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 You know, and I don't know if that's my dad thing or a cultural thing. I think it might be a cultural thing. And, and my mother would always tell me, Allison, never rely on a man Mm. for money. Never rely on a man. You make your own. You find a great man, but you make your own. Right. And so my ambition and my drive was born very, very early. You go to college, you finish college, all the things that my mom didn't do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Do you you think she had a lot of regret or resentment or was she just 
really trying to encourage you and empower you. I think, I don't know about resentment. Uh, you know, at that time they were going through a divorce. Right. So there were, it was acrimonious for yeah. a while. And, you know, now my parents are on great terms. They're close. You know, they live five minutes from each other. Um, but it was hard, you know, mm -hmm. so my mom was dealing with her own depression mm -hmm. and this massive change in being a single mom of right. six, right. you know what I mean? Gosh. And my father is, you know, leaving the country and, uh, it, it was really, um, it was really challenging, but those formative years, I can't, I can't not credit, you know, like this insatiable drive to do something powerful and to do something important in this life um was definitely born from my mother and that experience wow wow yeah. so how how old were you when they were going through the divorce and and you saw your mom's depression and and that sort of thing i was probably around 15 16 17 um it was it was hard cuz i didn't i didn't understand why my mother couldn't get out of bed, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. so I think even having an understanding now of people who suffer from depression, of it's not that my mom's lazy. Right. It's not that my mom can't get out of bed. Right. Like she physically can't and so couldn't. And so I, I didn't, I was kind of experiencing that firsthand and, you know, trying to go off to college and, you know, do all those things. And I remember she had me in an, um, art therapy mm. you know I feel like my mom was kind of progressive for the yes. time you know like she put me in art therapy that's and like I a would... big thing right now right. So this is like what how many however many years later right but you know even as a mother now and thinking back to my mom of just trying whatever she could to make sure we were going to be okay right. even throughout all of this trauma and all of this you know upheaval yeah yeah because her life was flipped upside down yeah basically and someone that and 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 I'm not sure about your your mom, but I think um, there are people that are more susceptible to depression, mm. and something triggers it in their life. And whether you know whether it's some sort of genetic con component, and then it's triggered by a situational component or whatever it is, um, some people are are just going to at some point go through mental health issues and, and depression and some people never experience it ever and, and good for them but it's got to be really hard at 15 and 16 so that's about the time that I was diagnosed um, to see your mom going through that because I remember me going through it and not understanding it like literally like why why can't I control my thoughts why am I having these absurd thoughts of killing myself and not being able to get out of bed and, and losing all this weight. Like I didn't understand it, but that's because no one talked about it. Yes, Right. It was such a yeah. taboo sort of thing and a shameful sort of thing that, you know, if, if people had been talking about it, it wouldn't be so embarrassing mm. and a 15 or 16 year old would actually understand. And once we start to, once we are able to understand ourselves and other people, we are able to help them. Yes. But until we can do that, there's nothing we can really do because we don't know how to help. Right. So did you have any, did any of those, um, feelings of depression rub off of you or rub onto you at your teenage years or did your struggle kind of start later in life? I think it would, I would say it probably started later in life. I will say that there was a period, <clears throat> and especially in middle school, where I always felt like I was, um, I felt things more intensely. Mm -hmm. And I was very thoughtful, like I was really interested in psychology and mm. understanding 
what's underneath it. And, um, I don't know that I suffered from depression, um, ever really, but I think that it took a different form later on in life. Okay. And a lot of it does stem from the family, the familial kind of stuff and, and really happened after 40, after having kids. Really? We just kind of spun out, (laughs) spun out in different ways, you know, (laughs) you know, I, I wonder, um, and, and you probably have a better, um, understanding of this, but I feel like, um, some people experience depression in a way where it's crippling, where you can't get out of bed, where you yeah. feel sad, you feel like you don't matter, you feel like um, nothing matters. Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. rather be not here. Oh, it's such a physical, yeah, it can be a, a physical experience for sure. But I wonder if some people experience it where it is the exact opposite, where you have to go, 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 go to not feel anything. So that's interesting because I I'd say from about 15 to about 31 I really struggled with several different things. And at first it was depression and then it kind of uh morphed into bipolar and along the way at first I was anorexic when I was 15 and 16 and then that turned into bulimia in my 20s. Um so I think originally it started with the debilitating factor where I, I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't do certain things. And it very much somewhere along the way, whatever label you want to put on it, it morphed to no one had any idea because I had this like game face, poker face on where mm. everything was great. My life was good. And I, that's when I would go home and, and binge eat and be on the floor physically shaking and crying and not knowing what to do and how to control my thoughts. Mm. So it was like during, it was like a, it was like a Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing, which enter bipolar. Um, the days would be okay because I was so busy, especially when I lived in LA. I mean, I was driving from house to house doing private swim lessons. I was training at a gym. I was lifeguarding. I was doing all of the things from the outside that, that looked so good and like oh you're 25 and you're on the beach with a life you know literally (laughs) I was that girl in a red lifeguard suit right and I would go home and I I was beside myself so I think it comes in different forms and Mm. at different stages of our lives so you know you and knock on wood I've been in my 30s now for several years and I have to say there are bouts of depressing moments but I used to have years of depression and then it would be months and weeks and now it's like days. So for me, it's just been this regression, I guess, on, on timing. Um, but I am also very hyper aware of when things happen in my life, how to make sure I stay mentally healthy and mentally well. So if you've never had to deal with that and something happens in your forties, it's the first time dealing with it. It's like me dealing with it at 15 or 16. So you had kids into your forties yep. and, and what happened that kind of, um, kind of jolted your, your health, your, your, your mental clarity and, and your experience with it. Yeah, when I was, so I got married at 37 Mm -hmm. and we found out we were pregnant on our honeymoon. (laughs) And so I had our, you know, first baby at 38. And um, with my son, I was with a, and and the reason why I mentioned this, because I feel so passionate about childbirth, um, especially in America, because I think what's happening now is people are starting to realize that the C-section rate is so unbelievably high 
Um, and for me, I was pressured into a C-section. And what I found out later is that it was unnecessary. Um, by, by your doctor or who? Yeah. So, and, and it's common practice, you know, and because you're older or why? why? So why? in my case, um, I had too much amniotic fluid. Okay. And so they said, well, um, what we recommend they, you know, I went to perinatologists and they said, you're, you know, 38, you have too much amniotic fluid. There is a risk of uterine rupture. Okay. Um, and we recommend, and this is my, you know, first time I'm pregnant and it was right. an easy pregnancy and, and it was good. Um, and they suggested I get induced two weeks early. So at 38 weeks. So <clears throat> what I didn't realize is that if you, um, if you are induced prior to it, you're three times more likely, likely to have a C-section okay. in the U.S. And so, um, so I got induced. They broke my water. I was five centimeters dilated five hours later. So everything was good. And then three hours after that, it was like eight o'clock at night. They checked again and I was still five centimeters dilated and they started hitting the panic button mm. and said, well, you know, you can have a C-section. I'm like, I don't want a C-section. Like right. everything in my birth plan says, <laughs> unless death is imminent, I don't want a C-section. Right. And they're like, well, okay, you know, you, you could have, um, you could have a, you could wait, um, but we may not be here. We might do a shift change. And I'm like, Okay. Well, you know? Yeah, what does that matter? Um, okay. <laughs> Next shift should be just fine to take <laughs> care of me. <laughs> you know, but these, I mean, I'd been with the practice for 12 right, years. Right. And then they said, well, I said, well, you know, what's the risk? And so at this point, I'm like getting sick. I'm throwing up. I have so many drugs in me yeah. from the epidural, yeah. from the, you know, Pitocin, from, uh, from, from everything. And was so ill um, because they kept kind of pushing it and they're mm. like you know there's a surgical room available now you could wait but it's right around Christmas and you know there may not be rooms later right you know and right. then I'm like what is going on and then um uh, but I didn't really understand the risks and um and they uh I said well what it, what is the risk and they said well you could wait or, you know, like the, the risk is that you risk infection because the water was broken. Okay. And what I didn't realize is that the infection, the risk is really 96 hours after <laughs> the, oh my the water gosh. breaks. So, yeah, I think the, the, and so I ended up having a C-section. My, my son was in the NICU for nine days hmm. um, because of it. And wow. um, I think he was just undercooked. His, his lungs were not fully developed. Right, right. And, um, and I didn't, uh, get to hold him for two days. It was just like a wacky time. Yeah. And he, he was, um, and I, he never latched, so I could never breastfeed him. Mm. So I ended up pumping for eight and a half months and it was just, it just was a bummer. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it wasn't what you had wanted, right? It wasn't what no, you had but expected. Even if it wasn't. So I understand C-sections are necessary, sure. you know, in some cases. In this case, when I found out I was pregnant with my second, I did IVF with my daughter. Okay. Um, so we had a whole thing to get to that point. And I was 40 years old mm. and I had a uterine fibroid, um, which was blocking my ability to get pregnant yeah. after my first. And so I had that removed. And so I had greater risk so IVF, yep. I had additional incisions in my belly. Um, 
and then a C-section before. And so when I had my, um, was pregnant with my second, I really wanted a different experience. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, uh, this is a flywheel story too. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, I ended up trying to figure out, like my, my doctor is like, you know, I was like, what, could I have a natural childbirth? You know, and they're like, we do not support that here. Because don't they say once you have one C-section, you right. probably will have another one? Yes. For the That's, second? That is general practice. Okay. It is not by ACOG, which is like the medical, right. you know, Bible of this. Um, but that is the medical practice okay. that doctors are not treated. They're not taught how to do vaginal birth after, after cesarean. I see. I there see. are two doctors in Atlanta that openly do and are, are trained for that. And my friend Isabel Dupree, who you may know. Yeah, I know that name. Yeah, so she's a good friend of mine. She was pregnant at the same time. And we, she, you know, basically told me, Allison, you can, you know, you don't have to have a C-section. And I'm like, what do you mean? And so she started sending me all of this data and right. all of these articles about options. And I'm like, what do I do? You know, like, am I putting myself and my baby right. in danger? And... I remember um, I went to four different doctors and four doctors told me I absolutely had to have another cesarean. Mm. And one doctor told me, you can, you, you don't have to. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> um, and so this, this particular doctor, his name is Dr. Boots Taylor in Atlanta. He looked at my, um, he looked at my medical records. He's like, I'm looking at where the incisions are. Your body can stand the trial of labor if you want. And I was like, well, do I need a C-section or not? And right. he's like, do you want one? And I'm like, what kind of doctor is this? <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Um, and he said, I know it's hard to believe, you know, it's hard to, I know you're probably not used to a doctor not just telling you right. what you need, right. you know, but in this practice, we believe in shared decision-making. So if you want, um, if you want to, uh, have a cesarean section, we'll support that. If you want, um, if you decide you want a natural childbirth and change your mind, we'll support it. You know, um, if you want, uh, epidural, we'll support right, it. Right. Right. But if I am, we're going to monitor you closely because you do have higher risk. Sure. If I tell you, you need a C-section, you need one until then it's your choice. Right. Right. And I remember being at Flywheel at six in the morning with Isabel. We're both oh pregnant. And I'm like, God, am I making the right decision? And, you know, she she had had two. She had had a natural childbirth. And she said, you know, I uh, having natural childbirth was the most empowering thing I've ever done. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I don't know. They're just things that I've done in life where I don't know that I would have had the courage, but going through that, you know, kind of really fueled me. And I remember that flywheel class. I was so fucking pissed <laughs> that that was taken away from me. Did you, you get know? your highest power score in that flywheel <laughs> Exactly class? right. Did but you get one of the t-shirts? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm always second to last. I'm never dead last. I'm always second to last in flywheel and leaderboard. Um, I'm slow, but it, I was so mad, you know, yeah. and so that fueled my whole pregnancy. So I ended up having a med-free natural childbirth at 41 weeks wow. gestation at 40 years weeks? old at 40 years old. Wow. All and everything was different. Everything was so amazing and so supported and so different. 
And the reason why I share that is because I felt like the C-section being pressured into a C-section the way that it was. And again, if I needed one, I get that, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. but I had the same exact conditions. I had too much amniotic fluid, even with the second one, you know, and it was monitored very closely, but the panic button was not hit right. in the same way. They right. said, okay, here's, here are your options. Right. And, you know, and you know, if you have a choice until you don't. Right. And, um, and it just felt so empowering, but I felt like my voice was taken away with the, the C-section. Yeah, yeah. I felt like it was taken away. And I remember feeling like, um, I, I just, I felt like I, I don't know if, if what I do matters anymore. Mm -hmm. It was really weird because I've always been a confident person right. and I, um, I felt different as a mother. I felt different. Like, um, did, did the ambition, not the ambition go away, but am I, am I who I thought I was? It's almost like they stole it from you. Right? It felt they, like that. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. don't want to play a victim, but it, it, it got to the point where afterwards going through my second child, I decided to, I wanted to make a difference. Yeah. And I thought of this idea, it was called Birthright Connects. And I was going to develop an app mm -hmm. where um, people could crowdsource their experience with doctors in childbirth. So if you were pregnant, Megan, you can look up your doctor and see what their C-section rate mm. is because people could crowdsource what it is like. Right, right. And be, it's kind of like Real Self, which is like the plastic surgery app. If you're looking for a procedure, <laughs> it's kind of like that for childbirth. So if you, you know, you're pregnant and you say, I'm, you know, I keep failing my glucose right, test, you can right. go and ask experts, you know, in the maternal health field and get it. So I had this whole thing. I was so passionate about it. And uh, it turned out the technology and the money were just yeah, too much outrageous. Yeah. And I was just way in over my head trying to figure out how do I bring this to life. But it was kind of planting the seeds for how do I make an impact? Right? How do I make a difference? Because this is not right. And there's so many people that are you know, pressured into a C-section, but because it's so normalized, yeah, they don't understand that they're dealing with postpartum depression after pregnancy. Right, they're right. dealing with, you know, really feeling lost after childbirth because they're not supported. Right. You know, I think in, in America, in very many cases, not all, obviously this is not a blanket statement, but again, you know, like the, the C-section rate in the U.S. is 31%. Wow. And 30 years ago, it was 10%. And I can't imagine, What's you know, women's so bodies have right, changed so right. much. It's just a practice. And I would imagine, and granted, I, I've never been, you know, I've never given birth or had a child, but I would imagine that there's some, not only the feeling of having something taken from you, but also maybe a feeling of failure because it's like, as a woman, that's what we're supposed yes. to do, right? Like, look at your mom. She had six kids. You have kids. We produce kids. We, we put them through our canals and birth them. Like, that's yes. what you're supposed to do. So when a doctor comes to you and says, no, you can't do that, it's almost like, did I, did I mess up? What did I do wrong in these past nine months? Or, or whatever the feeling might be. But, you know, trying to understand that, Maybe it's just uh, more of an issue with the medical side than us yes. as women. We can take the power back, right? Or 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 ask like, you know what? I 
I know it's been this long, but I'm going to go see another doctor or whatever yes. it is. Yes. Being able to actually take control of, of your life. And it's not playing the victim. It's simply saying, this is what happened to me. And you're only playing the victim if you let it affect you for years and years and years and years and years. Right. And, and harbor that anger or, or that reason, whatever it is that you had. So after you had your second child, um, looking back, you're like, wait, I was able to do this with the second one. Why wasn't I able to do it with the first? Did it create that sense of, of anger? And did you hold on to that? And what did you do about it? It actually manifested in a very strange way, believe it or not. And I ended up going in a deep rabbit hole of disordered eating really? and body dysmorphia. You know, like I've always been, I've always loved fitness mm -hmm. and um, and I could not, like I kept going to the gym and getting all these nutrition specialists and health coaches to get rid of this belly. And I was always, I'm small, like I'm petite, you yeah. know, I'm not a, I'm not heavy, but I had this little pooch and I'm like, there is, I'm not, I'm not keeping this, you know, like I'm, I'm spending too much time in the gym and too much time focused on my eating. And, uh, I just spiraled in a way that I had never imagined before and was so afraid that if I was desperate to not be the mom that let herself go and I felt like I had to look fabulous and dress a certain way and to look a certain way and be able to wear the same clothes that I wore before babies I did not want to be the mom that let herself go and it was um it got so bad where I would go to therapists and they would make it worse. <laughs> like I'd, I'm asking for help. And it just felt like it felt crazy because I, I, you know, similar to what you were saying of like, why can't I get out of bed? Why can't I, you know, why don't I feel better? You know, for me, I felt like this is helping nobody. So I'm completely obsessed. I can't stop obsessing over my body. I've got a husband who loves me. I have kids that are amazing. But I'm sitting here worried about my body mm -hmm. and this is where all my attention and focus is. And yeah. so I'd be so angry with myself for, for, you know, stuff that doesn't matter. And I knew it didn't matter and I could feel myself going crazy. And I remember I had a, uh, uh, some girlfriends, my CrossFit friends mm -hmm. and my girlfriends, we, we get together and I remember panicking because we were going to go to somebody's house and have dinner over there. And at this point, I was prepping food. And I remember going to a therapist session right before it. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't, I, sh I want to bring my own food. And I'm afraid to, I'm afraid if I eat a chip, I'll eat all the chips, you know, like it was just yeah. this. And I'm like, I'm listening, I'm watching myself You're like, spinning. get a grip woman, yeah. you know, <laughs> but, but I, I remember just kind of, I'm, sitting at sitting at there and you know they're looking at me like Allison what is wrong with you you know what what are you doing and uh it was just hard and, and yeah this is at 40 years old right 41, yeah 41 41 mm -hmm. which I think therein lies your story and there's there's a point in every interview that I do that I'm like this is the story and sometimes I don't know exactly where it's going to happen for me when I realize okay this is like this is what people are going to take away from your story. Like what you're doing now, everything that you're doing for the culture. I mean, that's amazing. That doesn't, but for all intents purposes, this is where your life, I think 
really changed. And a hundred hundred percent. Right. And and you're not, because when we think body dysmorphia and, and eating disorder disorders, we think teenagers, right. And 20 year olds, right. We don't think 40 year old women who look like they have got it all together. You've got the job, you've got the career, you've got the husband, you've got the two healthy kids. Like it can happen to people that look like they've got it all together yeah. and whatever triggered it. I would imagine there's some underlying, you know, thing from your past, from your childhood, that it's always there, that it was always there on the surface or right below the surface. Mm -hmm. And this was the catalyst that kind of launched you into this, you know, completely, and I say crazy because I feel like I can say that because I've been there, (laughs) this crazy sort of thing. That's how it felt, right? It felt nuts. So how did you take control of that how did you work your way through it or maybe you're still dealing with it now you I won't never believe. know you will not believe <laughs> shock it is, therapy it, no <laughs> <laughs> no but I might have opted I might have paid for that at that point you at know? some point in my life I'm like I don't care do whatever you need right. to do to me fix me so the craziest thing happened um and you're you're not going to believe this so I went to a tarot reading. Do you know who Kelly Knight is? No. Kelly. Oh, you need to know Kelly Knight. <laughs> I want her to do my tarot reading. Yeah, she's amazing. So she owns the Modern Mystic shop uh-huh. in yeah, yeah, Palm yeah. City Market. I've heard of and it. it's like this wildly successful metaphysical shop in Palm City Market. But before she was there, she was in uh, Paris on Ponce and she was doing tarot readings. So I'd been friends with her for 10 years, like mm-hmm. kind of Facebook friends, you know? And she was talking about tarot readings. And at that time, I I decided to get a reading and I was really focused on my job. Mm. And um, I'm like, you know, I'm not really happy in my career. I feel like I I need to be doing more. What, you know, what should I do? So she's pulling these cards and she immediately went to the food. Mm. She immediately went to some like childhood stuff of just like familial stuff and I'm like what yeah and so I was telling her about this and she asked one question that unwound everything for me like to this point I'd been to therapists I'd been to psychics I'd been to anybody anybody I could throw money at to fix this problem baton bob (laughs) if I could find baton bob I would I would employ him I want to get him on the show side note side note that'd be cool cool. he's on Instagram I just finally found him I was wondering where he was during COVID if he was like bringing joy to people (laughs) but um yeah so she asked me one question question and she said what if you took and this is not I don't even know if it it just happened to be an tarot reading it was kind of an obvious question but she said what if you took all this time that you spend waking up at 4 30 in the morning and you know going to the gym and prepping food and all this stuff that you don't like to do what if you just replaced it with something that felt really nourishing like a walk on the belt line or taking yoga instead Mm. of lifting heavy weights why don't you know what would that feel like and that one question unraveled everything and Mm. so I started to I stopped going to the gym and doing I started doing yoga Mm -hmm. and I started going on walks every morning and felt like I could feel the lightness in my body. And I felt, you know, I was so nervous. I felt like I was always one donut away from being (laughs) morbidly obese, you know, I mean, in my head. And so I'm like, what, what if I stop making, you know, prepping this food and what I weighed everything that I put in my mouth, you know, like everything was to the ounce. 
And it just was nuts. And I just started to unravel and no longer feel the weight of that Hmm. anymore. And did you like weigh yourself daily? Like yourself. I know you weighed your food it's and all a, It's all been in a cycle. You know, yeah. like you hear weighing yourself is bad. So right. I, I would stop weighing right. myself right. and, you know, and that would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that, um, it, it, and I wonder if it comes from, you know, when we see therapists and doctors, it's, it almost feels like, um, so clinical and, and judgy and, and trying to really like get into your psyche versus this friend of yours is terror where it was more of a suggestion, just like, Hey, what if, or what if yeah. like, versus like do this, do this and the, or take this medication or whatever, where it's like more suggestive and actually gives you an opportunity to try something versus feeling like you're just being diagnosed yeah, that's a, I mean, that's, that's a, a thoughtful, um, assumption. I know that I did go to one therapist and on the very first time I went to him, he said, how do you feel about medication? Mm. Like it was before I said anything, yeah. you know, and I'm like, I don't want that. And he's like, well, let me explain to you about beta blockers and, you know, and I'm, and every time I sat down there and I'm like, am I really crazy? Cause I feel like I just need somebody to talk to, you know, how do I do like the cognitive behavior? What is it? Cognitive, cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that seems right. And he wasn't even, he's not a psychiatrist. So he would say, I don't have any, you know, uh, ability to prescribe anything, right, but right. how do you feel about it? And I just felt like it was the wrong match, you know? And I think this is good for people to hear, especially women, you know, for me, the frustration lied in, especially as a teenager and my parents were just trying to fix me, fix me, fix me. Yes. It's like this doctor I didn't jive with this one wanted to do this. This it was like doctor after doctor after doctor. Yeah, it was so exhausting. Yeah. Um, and I feel like as an adult, you know, someone in their thirties and forties, like being a little bit more mature about it and being able to say like, Hey, it, it is a process, but, but keep pursuing different people and don't just stick with one, you know, therapist because your friend recommended it or because you think that they're going to fix you. Like go to somebody or do something or do whatever it is that helps you. Like we have to take our physical fitness and our mental health and all of it into what works best for us. Just like I look at it like physical fitness, like there are certain workouts that don't work for me you know, and certain workouts that I do that don't work for somebody else or trainers, you know, you may not drive with a trainer and it's okay. Move on to the next trainer, but, but you have to be willing to take the responsibility and do the work, which is a lot easier said than done. Yeah. So here's my thought on that. I feel like, and and maybe the common theme here is we're talking is advocating for yourself. Yes. You know, like I end up going to a bunch of healers after that. Right. Like my home is right. full of crystals right. that, that I don't know that they have the same potency. Well, who gives you know? a shit if it works for right. you? Exactly. Right? I don't I don't know. You know, like I don't really pray to candles or right. anything like right. that. But, you know, um, but but it really, really made me feel good at yeah. that time. So even advocating for myself as a as a patient, mm-hmm. you know, I think there there's the dichotomy of feeling like you know this doesn't feel right this does feel right the no yes feeling in your body right but then there's the other part of you know there are times when in my life where I felt so broken that Mm -hmm. I didn't trust my judgment like I got myself here 
So I'm not, I need an expert to help get me out. Absolutely. And that's the balance that I think we have to find. It's the fine line. And it's, it's, I think my driving purpose behind this show is getting people of all walks of life that have been through all different things. Everyone's got their own story, even if it's not, they don't think it's traumatic. We all have, we all have a story. We've all been through shit. There's no one that's gotten out of, no one that's going to get out of this life, you know, without any sort of trauma. However, I think the point is that there is not a one size fits all. Right. And I want people to, whether they've dealt with an eating disorder or depression or whatever, it doesn't matter. If you deal with a feeling and an emotion, right? Grief is grief. Pain is pain. Whether you're two or you're 92, a painful feeling is pain. It doesn't matter what caused it. What I want to know is how people deal with it, handle it. Um, you know, I say happiness is a habit. All this stuff is habitual and whether it's hard to break that habit and create a new one, that is our responsibility. But I wonder about, okay, so yeah. I've had questions about you. So I'll put oh, you on God, the spot. We're going to turn the tables. Well, you know, like when, when you were kind of writing your thing mm-hmm. about being happy, mm-hmm. like is happiness really the desired state? Because happiness is so fleeting, you know? So, yes. so it's put on this pedestal. Sure. You should always feel this way. But I think the real skill is coping. Yeah. You know, I feel like we are not taught how to cope anymore. Yeah. I feel like we're taught how to take a pill, how to forget. Forget right. about it, how to, right. you know, what, whatever it is, drink it down, yeah, whatever. Um, and I think that is the detriment to our society of not being able to deal with really hard stuff Yeah, than to just, you know, kind of put your arms out and say, bring it on. Right. Right. And, and that's, that's absolutely a fair and, and factual statement. It's, um, providing tangible information they, hey, this worked for me. I saw a bunch of therapists and I finally saw a tarot card reader, <laughs> you know? So maybe somebody goes and tries something kind of quote unquote wacky, right? Outside yeah. of the box that they might've judged someone else for, but now they're hearing that it worked for you and they're going to do it. So giving really tangible information and, and experiences for, for people that might be feeling the same way and not knowing where to turn and where to go, or maybe they can't afford a therapist or whatever it is. So no, I don't think, you know, I guess for me, when I say happiness is a habit is I look at my life big picture and I spent, um, so many years just being really unhappy that my parents would always say, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to be happy. Like I knew I was so unhappy that that was the opposite of it. And now looking back, it's very much to the point where if I can get up and look in the mirror and being and say, I I like my life. That's what it is for me. That's, it's like a contentment, you know, and, and, and being able to handle the things that are thrown my way and, Last year I went through a lot of traumatic stuff yeah. and I thought, you know, 2019 was bad. And then 2020 came along <laughs> and I was like, well, Jesus, it laughed at 2019 go. in exactly, the face. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But for me, I'm so incredibly proud of myself and happy with myself that I know that I can handle it. But what if it's that? What if it's just feeling like you have the tools yourself Yeah. and maybe that's happiness. Maybe, maybe that yeah. is. That's like the coping skills. Absolutely. Instead of feeling helpless or hopeless. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it it's it's different for different people. Like yes. what makes, you know, somebody happy might just be the things that they have and can afford to buy. For me, that's not it. For me, it's being able to cope and be able to handle 
you know, uh, getting fired and, and, and losing an income and health insurance and all of the things, breaking two bones, all of those things. Like now I know that I am so much stronger than I was 20 years ago that I can handle it. And I know that it's not the end. There's going to be hard things down the road. Um, but now I have the skills to handle it. So, so you having the skills to kind of take control of, of your life and, and look back, how are you, you know, several years later, right? Are you still dealing so with many it? Years. Um, <laughs> what, six? No, it's, I'm, I'm 45. <laughs> five years later two or three years two or three years later uh, (laughs) you're like don't age me but I'm thinking of your daughter I guess that's where I'm going with this is how do we the opportunity and I I talked to to my friend Brandon Chubb um, a couple weeks ago he's a black NFL player you know the opportunity is with the next generation Mm -hmm. and not perpetuating this onto them and and realizing like we have to take control as adults first before we can teach our kids what to do and it's not so much changing the older generation it's it's us empowering the next generation and actually giving them skills and tools to take responsibility of their own lives so a how are you dealing with it now and and b not only for your daughter but your son right? These types of things can be projected on them. Yeah. I think what's interesting is when I was 29, before I had kids, before I had a husband, before I had a boyfriend, Mm -hmm. before I had anything, I took a Toastmasters class. I was in Toastmasters and one of my speeches, I love Toastmasters. (laughs) And one of the speeches, so you're required to write a speech, you know, and there are different kind of topics or formats of a speech. And one of them I wrote was called how to be indispensable in a disposable world. Mm -hmm. And the answer for me is I was in, and the way that I write is like, I'll have an idea or a tagline and I just start writing and then it starts filling in to be, you know, like something that is, could be profound, I guess. Right. But in, in my case, it was legacy of how do you leave a, a lasting effort? And so how do you leave a lasting mark on what you do now? And so since I was 29, that has driven me mm. of, am I leaving a good enough legacy? And when I talk to my kids, it's funny that you mentioned my daughter because my daughter is five and she is um, super strong. Like Mm -hmm. she does not care what people think about her. She just is, she's like, she's amazing, right? She's so fun to watch. My son is seven and he's much more sensitive. He really feel like he, he doesn't need to be the most popular kid, but he needs to feel like he belongs somewhere. Otherwise, he's kind of all over the place. So it's interesting when he comes home and says, they wouldn't let me play with them, you know, mm-hmm. them, or they took my book bag, or they, you know, were making fun of me because I'm little, because he's Aww. small. And I have to sit there and just let him feel it. Yeah. And not tell him like, well, they're idiots or right. they're jealous, you know, like things like my mom would tell me like, yeah. they're jealous. Yeah. They're not jealous of the zit face. Right. <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> Buck teeth girl. Um, and, and I have to sit with it. And so for my son, I tell him, you know, Danny, my, my job is not to make this better for you. My job is to help you make this better for you. Mm. And I have to like constantly reframe him. And it's so hard 
to not try and fix it yeah. and just continuously tell them you have to learn how to cope. You, you know, like people are going to be mean. Right. And it, you know, like it, it's for a variety of different reasons. Right. And you have to figure it out. And it's really hard. Because if parents constantly fix their kids, they never learn how to do it themselves. And then mm-hmm. they grow up and go to college and they're 20 and 22 and 24 and they're they going through real life deal. stuff. They don't yeah. know how to deal. Yeah. So it starts young. And I think kids are so intuitive and they are so much smarter than, than parents give them credit for. And I feel like I can say this because I've, I started teaching swim lessons when I was 17 and I've, I've always worked with children Yeah, and they get it. Like they get it so much more than adults get it. And if we can kind of help mold them while the cement is still wet, right. And, and really give them the tools, um, that they will be more likely to handle this stuff at a later age, at a later state. Um, That's my hope. And I even, I think what's interesting is I got this weird sense the night I found out I was pregnant with my son. We were on our honeymoon in Ireland and I was up all night and all I thought about was, please God, let this child be capable. Let mm. this child feel capable. And I don't know why that was the word that yeah. kept coming for me of just, let him feel, let, I didn't even know it was to him. Let, let this child feel capable. Yeah. And, uh, and that is to true for my son. You know, yeah. my son is not an athletic kid. He's not, um, he's not like a normal, he's a normal kid, you know, right. he's healthy, but he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't want to participate in competitive stuff right. and neither did I or his dad, you know? Yeah. So, you know, we, we understand that, but we also don't want to push him into, right you know, trying to fit in when all he needs is to fit in with the people he cares about one or two people. Yeah. And he's good. Do you think there's some anxiety? Like he, does he struggle a little bit with anxiety? I think there might be a little bit. Yeah. I think there might be a little bit. There's some times where he just has these, I don't, I guess they're panic attacks, you know, like I might, um, yell at him for something and he's like hyperventilating and I'm like, Danny, just pick up your toys, you know? <laughs> and I have to like sit with him and just say, okay, Danny, just breathe, just right, breathe. It's okay. Right. You can do this. You can do this. Are you telling the story about the, the dinner, right? Wasn't, didn't, didn't you cook like chili or yes, something yes. and he didn't want the tomatoes and yes. you're like, just eat the freaking tomatoes. Yes. And you know, I have to really be conscious about yeah. how I deal with him because he's different yeah. from me, you right. know? He's right. different. Like I'm, I'm more like, get your shit together. Right. <laughs> you know, and my son is not, he's got to process things in his own yeah. way. And I'm doing my best to honor who he is. It's kind of that empathetic spirit. And again, going back to, um, not fixing someone, but understanding them Yeah, and really giving, having that sense of compassion and grace and realizing that everyone deals with things like you or I do. Cause I'm very much the same way. I'm more of a tough love. Should I get off the pot? Because that's how I was raised. Yes. However, um, going through all the things that I've been through in my life, I think I can relate to people of all walks and, and people that deal with emotions differently because like I was saying, like different stages of my life, I was handling things very differently. Um, so I feel like I just have that sort of, uh, empathetic spirit, um, to understand people and be like, well, this is why they do this. Not that it's right or wrong, especially this, you know, the stuff going on with, um, race in our, our society right mm-hmm. now with these 50 and six year old white men. It's like, 
they were raised to to learn that white privilege is the way of life, right? So being able to kind of compartmentalize that and knowing that, okay, we can't we can't teach our children this anymore, right? So it's Again, an evolution, you know, totally, parenting is totally. an evolution too. But I, you know, like I think about some of our leaders, people, thought leaders, people that we really look up to, like Oprah Winfrey is yeah. like the crown jewel of it all, right? you know, of understanding empathy yes. and really understanding um, things you probably wouldn't have been faced with yes. before, a new perspective. And then I think of Brene Brown. So mm-hmm. Brene Brown introduces vulnerability to the culture and changes. And yeah. then evolving from that is Glennon Doyle and her book Untamed where it's yes vulnerability but now it's like celebrating your inner spirit right and letting it be okay that you don't have to be this outgoing gregarious you know perfect person that has to fit in a box of just you know societal expectations but to you know to untame your wild and celebrate that even if it is shyness right or, you know, somebody that feels things really deeply. And your son will contribute to society in a different way than you than maybe many. Probably my daughter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's it's about finding, you know, what works for you and, and what opportunities in life um, that you can succeed at. And not everyone is going to deal with it the same way. Um, so back to kind of you and your story. Does the body dysmorphia, do you ever fear you're going to go back there? Sort of. So, you know, I, I had, so I ended up having a, um, mommy makeover. Okay. And it was horribly botched (laughs) and I had three surgeries to fix it. Really? And my body is, you know, like there's scar tissue. There's a lot of scar tissue where I can't really wear a normal bikini, you know, and, um, I have to wear things a certain way so that it's not showing, yeah. you know, like the, the scar tissue is a big bump. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think about, should I go fix it again? And I'm like, I can't go down that rabbit mm. hole. So I'm almost resistant. I'm resistant to diets. I'm resistance to, um, restrictive eating. Yeah. And so I'm more of the mind of more intuitive eating. Yeah. And I just house chocolate all day too. Like dark chocolate is kind of like my kryptonite, but it's healthy. I'm kind of okay with it. You know, like I've somehow let it go that, um, I, it's, it's okay if I put on some pounds. Right. Right. Um, I don't want to. And there are times when I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna, and I'm like, no, 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 I can't go down that road. I'm the same, same way. Um, are you? Yeah. Oh God. I think about my weight and I mean, I'm a bigger human being, but I think about that all the time. My especially with the, the field that I work in, uh, outside of this, you know, the fitness field, but I also realize, um, I'd rather be at this weight and, and be able to look at myself in the mirror and be like, okay, I'm ready. I like, I'm, I'm ready for the day or go to bed. And I reflect, um, there's a reason I do a lot of Instagram stories. I watch my stories every night and I'm like, today was a good day. Hmm. Um, that's probably why I do so many of them. I don't do it for everyone else. I do it for me. I'm like, I love that. What did I do today? And, and 10 to 15 years ago, I was a good 25 pounds lighter, but, um, you know, I'd fit into a different size of clothes and I was doing photo shoots and, uh, it didn't fulfill me. So I would much rather be this physically and mentally than that. 
So that's what kind of drives me yeah. and, and just staying healthy and realizing I want to um, grow into an 80 to 90 year old body that's healthy and strong. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, that's why people should work out so that they can be physically fit and be around for their family for long periods of time versus fitting into a, a size, you know, four pair of pants. It's yeah. I think for me, it's, um, you know, like there are certain triggers that yes. I'm like, I, yes. I'm not going to go down that yep. hole, yep. you know, and, and there are times when I look and I, I think it's more even the aging, you know, mm. like I have Botox and fillers in my, it's in it, their line items in my budget, yeah. you know, yeah. and I get my hair done every four weeks and yeah. it's such, it's such an expensive process. I think <laughs> it takes more, so long. Yeah. I think the body, you know, I, I'm okay with, I think it's more the aging part yeah. that I'm really actively fighting and, um, you know, at, again at 45 and uh, I, I think it's funny cause I just got certified to teach rebel yes, dance fitness. And so exciting. I have no background in dance and really no business dancing, <laughs> but to me, it's like, you know, the, the old bald guy that gets a Corvette, right, right, <laughs> you right, know? right. to me, I feel like the dance class is like, why not? Yeah. You know, why, why would I limit myself if something I feel brings feel me good. so much joy yeah. why not just go down the path of joy right. and that's kind of been my north star of what brings me joy and again what goes back to Kelly Knight and the tarot reading right. of you know why don't you do something that's nourishing for you yes and movement feels really really good to me you know trying to feel sexy mm -hmm. feels really good to me because I don't generally look at myself and go yeah yeah, that's a hot yeah. mom. That's a milf. <laughs> um, I, that's not how I view myself. But I'm just like, well, what if I just act, you know, do things that are going to just feel really good yeah. for me. Yeah. And if I keep doing more of what lights me up, then right. that's all I can ask for. Absolutely. And I think that's the biggest difference between being uh, me in your late 30s, you in your 40s versus in our 20s. Like I did things because I wanted to fit a, for a certain mold yeah. and now I do things because it makes me feel good and call it selfish or, or whatever. But at the end of the day, like I always say, you go into this, come into this world alone, you're going out of this world alone. But I don't think that's selfish. I think it's, you know, like conforming to society's expectations, sure. despite like being a sociopath or something, <laughs> you know. But I think to me, if I if I am continually chasing what makes me feel joy and pure joy, not yeah. like a manufactured, like a drug joy. Right. Then that is what I want my kids to learn. That's the legacy. You know, the example that I can lead is how how do you empower yourselves to just be who you are and celebrate that um, and go towards joy? Absolutely. Well, I, I celebrate you. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad that you came into my life. Um, and I'm so glad to hear that, you know, I think when we are vibrating and I might get a little frou-frou for a second, but when you start vibrating at a certain frequency where you feel joy, you also exude joy and light. And I think you and I are, are both moving on that path, which is a really cool path. And when you start to do that as a human being, 
you start to attract the same human beings on that path and you just level up together. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that you came into my life and incredibly grateful that you shared my story on, on your podcast and, um, are allowing me to do the same. And I think the more that we do this as a culture, you know, it starts with individuals and it starts with parents leading the way for their kids and, and really creating this sense of, you know, call it happiness, joy, whatever you want, just a feel good emotion, physically, spiritually, mentally, like all of it together. Like that is, that is the point of life for me. I agree. But I think the other aspect of what stops people Mm -hmm. is giving themselves permission to feel that way. And I struggle with that. Like, do I deserve to feel this good, you know, or feeling like the other shoe is going to drop. So I'm glad that you have this platform because I feel like it's important for people to feel permission to share their stories and that their stories matter. Yeah. And that their experiences matter and their feelings matter. Absolutely. And so I, I honor you for for doing that for other people and for me in the seat today. Well, thank you. How can we find you? You can find me uh, at allisonhair.com. Okay. My podcast is Culture Changers Podcast. So you can go on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever platform you will find it. And then on Instagram, I'm Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, underscore, underscore, hair like the rabbit h-a-r-e don't forget (laughs) two l's and allison two l's and an i (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us on six feet above i am so grateful you're in my life thank you meg thank you for listening to this episode of the six feet above podcast i'm your host megan armstrong subscribe so you never miss another episode as a new episode is released every tuesday And if you're enjoying the series, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Follow the show on Instagram at Six Feet Above Podcast to keep the conversation going. And feel free to reach out to me directly at Megstagram11. This episode is a product of Audiographies, produced by Megan Armstrong and Denor Sapolia, edited by Jacob Smolian, and the music is by Keenan Willis, funded by yours truly. I'll see you next time.